Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Our 10th edition of Roland Garros Relives here with you on the Tennis Podcast, and it features an all-William sisters final from 2002, Venus against Serena, and we have just watched it. And yeah, it was the start of Serena Williams dominating, and um, and it was it's been fascinating. We've just watched little moments from all of their next three Grand Slam finals that would follow straight away as well, and it's just one of the great stories of tennis that, that has ever happened, really, the, the Williams sisters story. Um, and it never ceases to intrigue me just to watch how they try to deal with the moments, how to deal with the situation that they're in. Um, and we're here to relive it with you on the Tennis Podcast. Catherine, how are you doing? I'm very okay. The same. Thanks, David. In the same spot, I notice. <laughs> yeah, nothing changes. No. Uh, Matt's in the same position as well. How you doing, Matt? I'm so glad I bought my new office chair before our run of the Roland Garros relived episodes. I've basically been sat here for, well, 10 straight days and sort of a comfy chair to sit in now. Yeah, bed's right next door to it. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so 2002, what was going on in 2002? What were you doing in 2002? Had things picked up on the... um, family photo album front yet Catherine or not uh 2002 was my GCSE year and I remember study leave coinciding exactly with the French Open which I recall being great (laughs) yeah where to treat for me back then I must say I failed everything I think I juggled I managed that juggling act potentially better than you did in the lost law years what are you saying (laughs) I'm saying I didn't <laughs> have accurate. to re- repeat any of my qualifications. Exactly ten years on from when uh, from when I completely failed mine. Uh, Matt, <laughs> um, 2002, you were six. Yeah, not too much to report, really. <laughs> just getting on with it at uh, primary school. <laughs> just getting on with just, it. Just getting on with it. <laughs> what were Matt. you doing, David? Was this your? This must have been your first year as a freelancer. Yeah, I'd left the ATP by this time and I was going off to tournaments on my own, um, just trying to work for anybody who'd have me. Um, 
And yes, I remember covering Rome shortly before this French Open that we're talking about right now. Uh, I remember covering Serena and, and interviewing her. And yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting time um, to be covering the sport in that way. Um, and I, I worked my first Wimbledon that year for BBC Radio 5 Live. So um, yeah, it was the start of a, a, a very different chapter uh, for me. And yeah, there, were so, there was so much going on in the tennis world there was this crossover of eras wasn't there because we we we're still seeing all these head-to-head rivalries but this one became more and more prevalent with every passing tournament and just to give you an idea of what else was going on in the world at that time in 2002 the queen mother died the osbournes premiered on mtv Tamil tigers and sri lanka government signed a ceasefire ending 19 years of civil war and 50% of the UK population by now have got internet access. <laughs> so that one's for you, Catherine. I thought you'd like to know that. Keep it partridge. <laughs> <laughs> what would I need to say for it not to be partridge? I was just thinking before you said the internet thing, I was thinking, oh, this is unpartridgey today. I've taken a step up. And then, <laughs> and then I gave you I love a it. technological it's my, fact. It's my favourite bit. <laughs> Well, it's not going anywhere, so it's a good job you're, you're getting used to it. Um, so tennis-wise at this point, we have moved on a year from yesterday's show when Jennifer Capriati won the French Open title. The rest of that year was dominated by Venus Williams, who won Wimbledon and the US Open, beating Serena in the final. What has happened so far in 2002, Matt? Well, Jennifer Capriati has defended her Australian Open title, uh, a tournament which Serena had to miss through injury, and Venus Williams lost for the first time ever to Monica Seles. Um, still, whenever I see that, Monica Seles was still going strong in 2002. That always kind of amazes me. Um, but yes, then they get on the hard courts and Serena really starts dominating. She doesn't actually she doesn't actually lose a match a completed match on hard courts in two thousand and two to start the season. Both sisters boycott Indian Wells for the first time following the racist incident in two thousand and one. That's a boycott that would go on until twenty fifteen for Serena, twenty sixteen for Venus. Um, and then Serena gets her first tour level win against Venus in the Miami semi-final, six-two, six-two, um, and then announces herself as one of the favourites for the French Open by winning Rome, uh, beating Justine Ennan and Jennifer Capriati. So they're definitely, you know, Venus has obviously dominated the year before. Serena's now really becoming a force. Um, John Wertheim actually wrote that they were threatening to tigerize women's tennis. I think that term being in terms of what Tiger Woods was doing in golf at that stage, um, it's just become such a dominant force. Um, and they were the they were the driving force in the game. They were the biggest stars, the biggest stories, getting the biggest crowds. And actually, a line I read is that there were talks of combining the tours a little bit like we've been talking about recently with this with this merger idea but it was very much kind of the ATP encouraging the women's tour to relocate to Pontevedra where they had their head offices and thinking that it made sense for the ATP um John Wertheim's line is that uh, it boils down to this 
Andre Agassi won't be around for much longer and no other male player comes close to the international stardom of the Williams sisters. Why not try to get in on the action? So that's that's the kind of scene that we're seeing in 2002 where, yeah, the Williams sisters are already big and they're about to just take that to a whole new level with this run of uh, Grand Slam finals that they play. And actually, if you look at what the male Grand Slam finals had been in that first half of 2002, you'd got Thomas Johansson winning the Australian Open, beating Marit Safin in the final. Um, and then in the French Open, I think it was the Albert Costa year, wasn't it? Was, it? Yeah. And beat uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero in the final, shortly followed by Leighton Hewitt beating David Nalbandian. So all very good players, but none of them with the sort of appeal that the Williams sisters and, and in fact many of the other top players in the world in the, in the women's game had got. You had left the ATP just in the nick of time before you had to... Uh... <laughs> Start, start pitching Thomas Johansson and Albert Costa for, uh, for for cover interviews. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. It, I think I told you a while back, didn't I, that the then ATP PR director, uh, American PR director, who'd come in from uh, basketball, was was lamenting the blow to the movement. <laughs> that uh, Albert Costa beating Juan Carlos Ferrero had caused. That big Juan Carlos Ferrero movement that we, well, we won't I mean, be reliving. He was part of that group that they were trying to publicise with New Balls Please and he was, you know, he was a young lad and, he, and I think he got absolutely thrashed for a couple of sets before he finally got any sort of foothold in that French Open final and it was, it was really a disappointment for, 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 for him. <laughs> Great moment for Albert Costa. <laughs> Albert, your your crowning moment of your career was broadly a great disappointment. <laughs> no, I, I really I really liked watching Albert Costa play. I loved his backhand, but um, no, I mean, let's be honest. We know we know which one got the TV ratings that year, and it was um, it was Serena against Venus in the final. And there was just there was a great sense of anticipation because. You mentioned yesterday, Catherine, that that reference to a big three with Capriati and Serena played Capriati in the semi-finals, didn't she? Before before this one, and that was an absolute belter, from what I can recall. Yeah, do you do you recall watching it live? I, I'm trying. I, not really. I watched highlights of it yesterday, and I was trying to recall. But you know, we don't know if something's a memory or um, you've sort of superimposed. Um, things that you've you've heard latterly sort of into your mind as as memories but i can i can convince myself that i had a happy day watching that while i should have been <laughs> studying for for my geography gcse um yeah it was a big three it's, i think venus was guaranteed uh by about the quarterfinal stage venus had been guaranteed to finish the tournament as world number one um but it was a tussle between serena and capriati for that two for that two and three spot um, and people were into it. And early on in the season, Venus and Capriati had traded the number mm. one ranking. And um, I think Capriati said something like, um, if if Davenport and Hingis, I think, were injured, and she said something like, if they weren't injured, it's possible that Venus would never have got to world number one. There was a, was a little bit of tension, I think, between Capriati and the, and the Williams sisters. And a couple of years earlier with Hingis and the Williams sisters... As well, I mean, it sounds like Hingis pretty much had tension with everybody, 
by her own by her own creation. Um, but it's I think you commented on this uh, with the with yesterday's match that we relived the the previous year's final. It's amazing how much Hingis was already fading from the conversation slash completely faded from the conversation. I mean, there were. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about people's attitudes towards the Williams sisters and how they in some ways evolved and in some ways maybe didn't evolve, but sort of I was I was trying to look look for, for quotes from fellow fellow players sort of when they first rose to prominence and it was all it was all Martina Hingis, you know, being asked about them. Everyone wanted to know what what she thought and uh she she I mean, I cut her a bit of slack for being for being extremely young, but she didn't cover herself in glory with a lot of the things she had to say about about the Williams sisters. Um, but yeah, she was just not part of the conversation at all by that stage. Monica Sellish, as you pointed out, still still was, which I find amazing. Um, so to think that you had Venus and Serena, Monica Sellish in her comeback, Jennifer Capriati in her comeback. I mean, these are all stories individually that are incredible and that we've covered on relived podcasts and the fact that they sort of all collided at a moment in time in tennis. I can see why the ATP with Johansson and Costa were trying to get in on the action. Hashtag market forces. <laughs> yeah, it felt like um, that final that Hingis played against Capriati where she just wilted physically uh, in that awful heat, that seemed to cause her a lot of problems after that. Whereas Capriati strode on, the Williams sisters really were, were in their pomp then. Venus had won two in a row. Um, and then they come to this final. And this final, and we've just watched the highlights, it's another one where we find ourselves just lamenting the lack of proper archive of, of these great finals, these huge moments in tennis history, because we've had to find somebody who thankfully has uploaded it unofficially out there, but only as a, a sort of 12-minute highlight film in order to try to get a sense of, of what happened, which is a, a great shame. It would be, be fantastic if there was just a, a whole archive of every big match ever that we could just go and watch at our, at our will, really. Um, but, what I mean... It's no surprise to know how hard and how well these two players were hitting the ball, but to watch them at that age, which is 18 years ago, and see the athleticism and see the power, it's breathtaking. It really is. I I, I hadn't realised quite how Serena in particular – I mean, I, I've watched more recent archive, I think, of, of Venus Williams matches. There have been clips that have been put up of her matches with Justine Ennan from the mid-2000s and showing her movement. But the way that every shot has got intent from Serena, it's she looks pretty irresistible, to be quite honest, the way she's playing that sport. And I really noticed that. Like Catherine, I watched the highlights of the semi-final against Capriati and – Yesterday, when we were watching Capriati, I was thinking, wow, she's powerful. She's a powerful player. And yet, when she comes up against Serena in that semi-final, she's so often on the back foot because Serena's just got power off both wings and um, uses it. And it's, you know, every every shot is is has potential to be aggressive combined with her athleticism and her movement. And it's just an absolute force on the court. And actually, I think... 
that's you don't quite see that quite so much when she plays Venus in this era because they're both like that. Um, and you don't quite get that contrast. And I think the similar styles that they had, obviously along with the fact that they had such familiarity with each other's games and their obvious emotional attachment made their matches a little awkward and maybe not quite as high quality as they could have been. I think this one was most notable for Venus's serving. Apparently she just served a load of double faults in this match, I think nine altogether, and just never settled. Um, So it perhaps wasn't a high-quality match necessarily, but certainly there are flashes of brilliance, and it's obviously a historic match because it's the the start of Serena's run of four slams in a row. Yeah, before we started uh, watching our measly 12 minutes highlights package and we're, we're lamenting the uh, the lack of full archive, Matt uh, <laughs> Matt gave us a silver lining by explaining, I'm led to believe that actually this highlights package rather um, exaggerates the quality of the match. <laughs> <laughs> unlike Unlike yesterday when we could have done with someone exaggerating the quality of the match. There was a very alarming stat that uh, that of the 149 points, 101 ended in unforced errors. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> it could, could we, have been we, another we, trip to the Northern Lights. <laughs> but a little bit like yesterday's match between Kleisters and, and Capriati, it's a problem of styles, isn't yeah. it, mm. to some degree? You get two big first strike tennis tennis players players that the moment they've got one to tee off on and and i think in the minds of serena venus capriati kleisters and and many other players like that their view is most balls are attackable Mm -hmm. um and what you end up with is the ball flying across the court at an incredible rate of knots and then the opponent also trying to tee off on the same on that ball and it leads to errors it's funny you know um doing these these relived shows um as as we've been doing over the last 10 days or and more um i've actually sort of been been nurturing the opinion that the the advent of the Williams sisters bringing with them the the power game in women's tennis that that narrative is actually been slightly exaggerated and inflated over the years looking back on Monica Selesh and and Steffi Graf with the forehand power tennis was there before the Williams sisters arrived of course they they moved it on a bit but power tennis was there I mean Monica Selesh was every bit as aggressive a tennis player as Serena and Venus I I do think what was a complete gear change was their serves particularly Serena as it went mm. along because she had it on both the first and second serves. But actually, I think that that is what they changed. And actually still, uh, you know, it, it has led to serves on average improving, but they still, particularly Serena, stand apart on the serve in the women's game, don't they? Absolutely. And I think it's also been notable as we've been doing this sort of journey through Roland Garros is how much at the start of our Relive series we were commenting on the different styles, the contrast of styles in every match, whether that be McEnroe-Lendl, whether it be Everett Navratilova, whether it be um, Noah Villander. And it seems that the last three we've done since we 
talked about the string technology change in 97. The last three we've done, Agassi Medvedev, uh, Kleisters Capriati and the Williams sisters, that, that contrast of styles has disappeared from the matchup. Now, obviously you get it every now and again, but the norm now has become similar players coming up against each other. Whereas certainly in the 80s and 90s also, there was more of a natural contrast of styles obviously we've gained a lot with string technology and power tennis but there does, does seem to be something lost how many um french opens did serena end up winning she has won three three three, three. 2002 Which... 13 and 15 i think and and venus never actually managed to win one did she no no, mm. this was her only final. Only final, yeah. Right, yeah. And I mean, it was a close first set. I think it was 7-5, wasn't it, first set? And they really were going toe-to-toe. They both had their moments. Second set, more straightforward for Serena Williams. But certainly Serena looks the more comfortable on the surface. We we can hear from Mary Carrillo now on that because she has a view on, on why that is. I think they both... They both- uh, enjoyed being in Europe. They're not li- a lot of Americans at the time thought, oh, this is going to be a long slog. Uh, Serena and Venus always enjoyed traveling. They always enjoyed, you know, seeing this planet. So, and, and they both tried to learn French and they just kept winning and they played big, forceful tennis. And, and the thing is, back in 2002, that was the time when so many of us thought that Venus and Serena would be in major finals everywhere, like for 10 years. And of course, that didn't happen. It happened for a couple of years in the early 2000s. And then, except for the Wimbledons that that Venus won, she wasn't showing up on the final weekends of every major. Personally, there, that matchup is not among my favorites. And and only because it was fra- it's so fraught. Even me watching, not only are they sisters, they truly are each other's best friends. They truly... Uh, that bond between those two is almost impossible to, and I've obviously I've watched their whole act. I've been, I've watched them from the time they were little kids. I was never that comfortable watching them play for major titles because I couldn't even imagine what, what it could have been like to, to be them trying to beat the other. Um, so it never surprised me when Serena beat Venus. It certainly didn't surprise me on clay. Um, because I, I just feel like she took herself more seriously on clay. That might not be true, but that's how I, that's kind of how I saw it. And I also think that at a certain point, the older of the Williams sisters must have sensed how much more important it was for Serena to win titles like that. <laughs> you know, Venus jokes, they both joke about the fact that even from the time they were little kids, at card games or at yard games, Serena would cheat and they would let, they would let her. Like all the sisters like knew, all right, this means a lot to her. <laughs> we got to kind of let her, you know, we kind of, let's let her win. Let's let her, you know, I don't know. I think at a certain point in that Serena Venus um, rivalry in that dynamic, Serena was making it so clear to all of us how important it was for her to win, even if she had to go through her sister to do it. How much of that dynamic is about those two as individuals and how much is it about maybe that kind of intrinsic thing uh, uh, about being an older sibling and being 
a younger sibling. It seems meaner for an older sibling to want to beat a younger sibling than for an, yes. a younger sibling to want to beat an older one. Right. But I think Serena, the, the hunger level, the appetite Serena had for to dominate this sport is almost unparalleled. The, the, she has shown so much more emotion than, <laughs> than most people are willing to show to get to where she needs to go. And, and Venus just, that's not how she's built. You know, she has a much more interior hunger, I think, than Serena. Um, when with Serena, I think I've called it before. It's like a furnace blast. You can, you, you just feel it. And if, and if you're Venus, you certainly know what, what Serena is better than anybody. You, you said a similar thing about Venus on clay to what you said about Sampras on clay that kind of, they let the inhibitions about the surface get yes. in the way. They didn't, they didn't believe enough kind of that stigma about Americans on clay. Maybe this isn't for me. Do you right. think, yeah. Is that the case? Well, I think, look, you either like someone like Andre Agassi who won in 99 in Paris, he ignored the surface. <laughs> like you could either, okay, I got to learn how to slide into my shots. I need, I learned, I need to learn how to slide out of my shots. Agassi never slid, you know, Sampras didn't slide. And again, keep in mind, Venus is tall. You know, she's she's long limbed. She's her levers are are they're hard to. It's hard to organize if you don't grow up on this stuff. It's hard to, I think, organize all of your limbs to go in the same direction and to go to move east and west and then quickly move north and south the way you have to uh, on a tennis court. So I think that's part of it too. You know, some people. I like the people who embrace clay like Sharapova, who ended up winning it a couple of times there, but she really had to work on it. You know, she said, all right, I got to learn how to move better on this stuff. Um, there are some players who I just feel like they thought, you know what, let's move on to the, you know, why don't, if they, <laughs> I, and even me, Catherine, I love clay courts. I love them. But by the end of the clay court season, by the last couple of days of Roland Garros, when the guys are watering the courts, I swear to God, it happens every time I'm thinking, come on, grass, come on, shoot out of there. <laughs> <laughs> and it almost never does. You know, I, I, as much as I love clay, uh, it's kind of nice to go green after a while. <laughs> I think we probably all agree with Mary on that. Um, There's so much to unpack there, really, isn't there? From the, the views of how Sampras and, and Venus Williams were less less comfortable on the surface, but less committed to the surface. I've spoken in the past about how I think Sampras didn't really do himself justice over the years, didn't properly have a go. Um, Serena clearly did, and, and Sharapova clearly did. But I, I love the analysis of the two of them that you both got into about how much more winning means to Serena Williams than it does to Venus. At least that's how it appears from the way they react to, to victories. We, we watched very closely for the moment of victory in this final, and Serena's absolutely thrilled. Venus runs off to the side and asks for a, a, a camera to be lowered down from her support team, from her family. Give me my camera so I can join the photography lineup and take some pictures of my sister who's just beaten me holding the trophy. I mean, it, it was a lovely moment. But you said at the time, Catherine, 
don't think Serena would be doing that in the in, if the if the positions were reversed. So we then went and watched the next uh, or, or the previous time that they played in a final in the U.S. Open a few months earlier when Venus had won to see the difference in reaction, and and it was pretty stark the difference. I know there are only one example, but that the, the difference was pretty stark. Yeah, and I'm I'm fascinated by it. I'm exactly as I put to Mary. I'm fascinated by how much of it is down to them as as individuals and how much of it is down to the intrinsic dynamic between between siblings and we'll 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 never know how much it's one and how much is the other because we'll never have a bigger sample big enough sample size to tell how many uh sets of siblings are there that have both become champions and rivals in the same sport at the same time incredibly few um we are all Younger siblings, right? Younger of two. Yeah. Um, so I can certainly relate to being the younger sibling that family members need to let win at Monopoly or else she'll have a tantrum. <laughs> um, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but um, neither my brother or I grew up to be champions in anything. So that does that. But I, I just, I'm fascinated by it and we'll never, ever know because, because they're so completely unique. They're a sample size of one. Um, and that's, God, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, myst- it's as mystifying as it is um, mesmerizing. There were some lovely words from Venus talking about how, she's used to cheering for her sister and that's just the way it is. She always wants her to win. And it's, it, it, again, how do you handle that situation? It's just impossible. I think it's also important to kind of point out that obviously Venus has as well a burning desire to win herself. She is also a multiple Grand Slam champion. And I think I think that is most obvious when you see her reaction in the 1999 US Open final when Serena wins. Everyone was expecting Venus to win the first slam between them, but actually it's Serena who wins it. And Venus is in the player box and she sits there barely smiling with her hood over her face. And it's almost like a moment where she thought that that should have been me. I should have been the first one. I'm happy for Serena. Of course I am, but that should have been me. And I think when we move the story on to 2002, Venus has got four slams now herself. She's kind of, it's much easier now to be completely happy for Serena. And it it is a genuine joy for Serena, genuine happiness. She cares so much about it, but it's, but because she herself has now won, it's easier to express that joy. I think. That's such an interesting point about that that reaction and the sort of that should have been me. I watched a um, a YouTube video earlier, a little sort of twenty minute documentary from very early on in their careers, using archive footage from when they were juniors, and it was entitled "Serena Williams Living in the Shadow of Venus," and it was Serena talking about how. She was the always the underdog. It was Venus that was the prominent junior g- growing up. Um, although they didn't play much on the official junior circuit at all, if if at all, I think. Um, 
but Serena was the one, uh, Venus was the one that was talked about. And Serena, I guess that's maybe though how you, that, that plays into the whole chippy underdog younger sibling dynamic. That helps to, to foster a different level of competitiveness, doesn't it? A different type of competitiveness. That feeling of, I want to step out from the shadows. I want to be the one. I want a piece of that. Um, and I think this 2002 era was the time when Serena was really tapping into that part of her. I think I, I saw an interview that she gave Mary Carrillo at Wimbledon that year where she said, I want to do more than just play. I want to have a legacy. And Mission accomplished, <laughs> she, Serena. Absolutely. And I think she said after this French Open, you know, this was only her second slam in 2002. She'd gone nine slams without winning another one after her first. And her name was a little bit associated with underachievement, as crazy as that sounds to say now. But back then, and she said, I didn't want to be a one hit wonder. <laughs> how about how about a 23 hit wonder? Um, and I just think this was the time where people were really beginning to realise that they were quite different, actually. And I think when they burst onto the scene, there was a kind of conflation of them. People would talk about, I remember you saying, David, they would talk about the Williams sisters. Whereas I think as this year progresses after this 2002 final, they begin to talk more about Serena and Venus and realising that they do have different personalities and they are going to have quite different careers. Because... As you said, Serena, well, Richard Williams' words, she's meaner. She's She's got more, even more competitive fire. And that be- just became obvious. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or your smart TV, both in HD. Matt, this sounds like your kind of thing. Yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tie break or even the latest bit of aggro. And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Longlen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with Legends of the Game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait. 
Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Richard Williams, who wasn't in the player box for this particular match. And we should say that we we produced another relived our first one, in fact, Miami relived earlier this year when we covered their 1999 Miami Open final, which was their first meeting in a final. And we covered the the entire backstory of the Williams sisters and how Richard Williams had, had set them up in order to be tennis players um, and was so present and so visible on that day with his sign, Wel- welcome to the Williams show. Mm. Well, he wasn't there on this occasion i think you said matt earlier that that was just shortly after he'd he'd split from orosine uh his wife at the time and um and, and mother of the the williams sisters um so he was nowhere to be seen but from the french open they then went to wimbledon they faced each other in the final again bear in mind that Venus, that was where she had her most success. She won five titles in all at Wimbledon, but she was beaten comprehensively in the final by Serena, who did not lose a set in in the entire championships. They met again at the US Open later that year, same result, and then they met at the Australian Open uh, in 2003 much closer match but once again Serena coming out on top, so four slams in a row for her and the Serena slam. So, yeah, <laughs> heck of a dominant. No, dominance from the two of them and from Serena in particular. Really just remarkable that they played in four straight slam finals. I think the only pair ever to do that. There was a I'd forgotten that, I must say. There was a period in 2016 where I thought Djokovic was going to beat Murray in all of the Grand Slam finals when they started that season. I could just kind of envisage that sort of Djokovic with the trophy, Murray with the runner up. <laughs> plate just I just thought that that was going to happen as it turned out it didn't but yeah it did happen in this period for Venus and Serena and that must have if people weren't aware already that they were different and I mean that that period must have left scars I almost think for Venus I mean to lose so many consecutive to to her sister as happy as she was for her sister how could she ever kind of overcome that I, I don't know I think that their whole dynamic probably changed over that period I wasn't working in tennis at the time obviously David I was busy intermittently studying for for exams but unfortunately my recollection of of the the discussion around those four consecutive Grand Slam final meetings at the time was one of I roll oh god I hope this isn't what the next 10 years of tennis looks like i hope i hope we're not going to be seeing the two of them meeting because it's too weird it's too uncomfortable it's too all the rest of it and i'm not saying there's not a grain of truth in that there is something as mary touched on there tough about watching them play because you're it's you're just consumed with thoughts of how fantastically difficult it must be for them and awkward and and there is an awkwardness to it but I, i do I do remember feeling like it was okay to say, "Oh God, I hope I hope this isn't what we're we're in for for the next five years," um, and that sh- that shouldn't have been how it was received. No, I agree with you. I always felt that in America there was, it seemed to me certainly within stadiums that you would watch their matches, there was more of a celebration feel to it. 
whereas in the UK, I think people, as you say, saw sisters and and didn't know who to support, didn't know which side to pick. And people here, I think, were feeling I need to pick a side and in order to properly enjoy it. And, and it looked as though the sisters themselves were going through such a difficult time trying to play their normal competitive game against somebody they love with all, all their heart. Um, that That's how it always came across to me. And I, and I think you're right to some degree, Catherine. I think there, the, there was a sort of an awe on one side of it but there was also a kind of well this isn't the ideal situation on the other side of it yeah and it kind of it it played into their their otherness didn't it that's how that's what the the reception of them them was they are other and of course that that had a lot to do with with their race you know they were they were treated as total outliers and of course they were total outliers but there was this sort of feeling of them being completely unrelatable and you kind of I mean I I do it a little even now saying we can't possibly understand what it was like for them to to compete against one another as sisters I'm talking about it in the past tense as if they're not still (laughs) active tennis players in their late 30s um we can't possibly understand what it was like. Well, well, maybe we we didn't try hard enough. We don't try hard enough because there's this deeply entrenched feeling of otherness about them, anyway. Because of because of our preconceptions, because of the way the world is, because because of how tennis is. Because unfortunately, um, black people are still other in in the tennis world. It is still. I mean, in the world, obviously, look at what's going on in the world. But it, it's still deeply entrenched sport um, in many ways over gender and race um, and homophobia, all of it. You know, we're not in a post any of these things world. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. It's certainly not to to make sweeping statements like this isn't about race or that's not about race. I think. You know, I was looking over some of the some of the articles that were were written about the two of them, and in particular, Serena, circa two thousand and two. And there's no overt racial slurs in in anything that I could see, but just some of the language that's used is is horrifying, really. And yet, it's also language that I think would still be used now. You know, a piece piece in the Sunday Telegraph from from 2002, around about the time, um, in fact, at the time that Serena Williams wore that, the uh, the cat suit at the 2002 US Open, which was a super cool um, uh, outfit, I thought, anyway. Um, it was written about her, on some women, the cat suit might look good. Unfortunately, some women aren't wearing it. On Serena, it only serves to accentuate a superstructure that is already bordering on the digitally enhanced and a rear end that I will attempt to sum up as discreetly as possible by simply referring to it as formidable. Um, and you can find this everywhere. It was completely commonplace. You know, the the tropes of hypersexualization and athleticism of of the female body and and of the black female body and and the 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 tendency to use language of aggression about them 
And I don't know what the answer to, to this is now, because we, we've all done it in this podcast. And the answer is not to not mention that the Serena Williams, uh, that the Williams sisters are extremely athletic tennis players and extremely powerful tennis players um, and as extremely aggressive tennis players, because they are all of those things. And it doesn't, doesn't solve any problems to to ignore that i think the answer for for white folk like us is just to to be aware of of the fact that that we're all victims of the world in which we live not victims but you know everything we say comes from a certain place um and i just think we should always be questioning ourselves and questioning context and questioning unconscious bias i don't have i don't have the answers but looking no, well looking back on looking back on some of those things that were written not all that long ago um is pretty horrifying but it's also pretty horrifying to think that probably a version of that would still be written now i mean just look back to us open 2018 and and how close to the surface those those tropes were in the depiction of serena williams now we don't need to go into the whole rights and wrongs. She she behaved badly. We all think she behaved badly. But those tropes about a uh, an angry black woman were they were all there, right underneath the surface, ready to emerge at everyone's fingertips or a lot of people's fingertips. And yeah, we've got a long way to go. Mm. A man that covered both the careers of Venus and Serena Williams throughout was Chris Clary from the New York Times. Let's let's hear from him about what it was like covering that period in tennis history. You know, they were on the front page of the New York Times when they were long before they made it to the pro circuit. So and we tend to be a little bit reticent about that kind of coverage, but it was the story was just irresistible and 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 the way that Richard ultimately marketed the two of them as a story, as a as a phenomenon was brilliant. Ultimately, um, there wasn't a lot of content to go from. They didn't play junior tennis. They were out there, you know, playing the junior slams. They were, they were held back, and you had to take the word of the experts that they were so amazing. And and he uh, he played his hand very smartly in terms of stoking the public interest in that. And then when it came along, the reality actually surpassed the expectations. Maybe not his, but everybody else's. So that was and that was interesting. And then obviously the the aspect of all of us can relate to. You know, sibling rivalry in some form or another, or at least most of us can. And um, so there was that element that the first one to break through and, and then to be surpassed and, and pretty mightily surpassed by, by the younger sibling was uh, undeniable and very poignant. And was I think it, was it surprising to you, uh, Chris, to, to see, because I mean, we were, I've been watching some old videos of Venus recently and seeing how good she is. I mean, she, it's easy to forget now that she's nearly 40, she's still playing, but just what a mover she was, what a good player she was. And to be surpassed, now I know Venus has had serious health issues of late, but it, but I mean, it is interesting that, that Serena overtook her to quite such the, a degree as she did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously they had, they had some good matches. There was that dynamic to navigate psychologically. I think if Venus had been playing a player probably as good as Serena, who wasn't her little sister in some of those matches, 
She's never talked about this openly. I don't know. I'm, I'm asked to conjecture on my part, but I, I would bet some of those results might have been a little bit different. I think she might have been able to hit different levels if she wasn't playing somebody from her family and it wasn't awkward. But then you can also argue that Serena might have played differently too against somebody of equal skill who wasn't her sister. But I feel like um, when you saw Venus, I mean, Monica changed the game for me um, with her ability to attack um, off both wings, off the short bounce. And, and just shorten the court, you know, a bit like Andre did in, in men's tennis as well later on, and Novak does now. Um, but she she was the first one I can recall doing that, and I think that changed the game. And then Venus and Serena came along, and with their athleticism and their drive and their sibling rivalry for motor, they took it to another level. And And I think Monica had a very good serve. But she wasn't anywhere near as good a mover as Venus or Serena and didn't have the, you know, the raw power uh, off the serving that uh, Venus and Serena did. But I think ultimately what's made the difference, aside from Serena's incredible competitive nature, is, has probably been the serve. And, and I'd say the forehand on, in terms of just the technique and, and the reliability of it. But when you watch Venus and some of those early 2000 matches from Wimbledon and you watch the court coverage um, and just the ability to play end-to-end tennis, and also attack the net and cover the net with a big wingspan. And her serve was considered a next level when she came along as well as we all remember. So I think it was hard to imagine and conceive that Serena would be end up being dominant. How, how, good, how much better than Venus could she be? And also Venus is six foot two and moves like she could be five foot six. And Serena was, you know, quite a bit shorter. So you figured that with that leverage and that reach, Venus would always have a a chance to be really competitive against her sister or anybody for that matter. But it didn't play out that way. Did you enjoy their matches? You know, as, as, a, as a journalist, I really, I found them fascinating to, to think about um, and, to, and to set up, to advance, if you will, to use our, our vernacular. Um, but I, I can't say I really got as much pleasure out of the matches themselves I think as time went on and the dynamic changed and it started to feel a little more like a tennis match as opposed to a, uh, a psychological trial in some ways for everybody. But um, you definitely you just couldn't avoid thinking about that. You could tell they weren't playing in the normal way necessarily emotionally. And, and as a spectator, you felt like you were almost intruding at times when you watched it early on. There are some exceptions. Um, and, uh, but they, and over time, I think they worked through that. But by then, kind of the, the pecking order was pretty firmly established. Uh, but in those sort of formative years, it was it was tough. To, it was tough to see, and also I think they played so often and with the same result <laughs> during that period. You know, in the uh, you saw at least off the grass anyway that it, it started to be feel, started to feel a lot of uh, you know empathy for uh, for Venus. Yeah, because in the end. Catherine, we've ended up with, well, we don't know whether we ended up with Serena on 23 or, or more, but at least 23 and Venus on seven. So she's got more than three times the number of major titles, which I think, well, if you rewound to 2002, which is the match we've just covered, that would seem preposterous. What would seem more preposterous, that or being told that they would meet in an Australian Open final in the year 2017? brackets with Serena being pregnant at the time, just as a, you know, extra twist to the tail, because that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Sure is. 
It sure is. And still going strong now. I mean, what a story. Well, we don't... Yeah. I mean, Venus is certainly going... This is something uh, talked about with uh, with, um, with Lindsay Davenport, I think, and, and a little bit with Mary. Venus is doing her... Is it weekly or is it daily workout videos? Daily. Daily. Yeah, daily. So we know what Venus is up to in lockdown, but Serena's been very quiet. Yeah. Yeah. No daily workout videos from her. I mean, presumably she's no. doing parenting. Well, I've se- I've seen some Instagram posts and and various bits she's posted. She also um, communicated the the very powerful video that uh, Francis Tiafo produced, which featured many of his fellow black players um, and and black people that work within the tennis industry and protesting and, and making their their statements in video form and and that's that's the most recent thing i've seen from serena and and if you if you get chance do have a look at that video because it really is powerful um at such a such a difficult time um we've had an email as well from chris that i'd like to just finish with he is a listener from minneapolis and a Kickstarter backer. Thank you for that, Chris. He's been in touch uh, a, a few times over the last couple of years. Um, and he's he's been listening all the time, um, even when he, he he was in the hospital as ki- as his kids were being born, which is a, a lovely a lovely thought. Um, and he, he wrote that he wanted to write for a different reason this time, which was to say thank you for the podcast during a time of tremendous turmoil in his adopted home of Minneapolis where he's lived for a while, he says, as a horrifying police murder of of an unarmed black man has pushed coronavirus headlines off the top of news feeds the world over and led to rightful unrest in search for institutional reform, and as a great city and its incredibly vibrant multi-ethnic communities have been ravaged over the last couple of nights, largely instigated by outside elements of anarchy and supremacism, the daily pods from the Roland Garros relived have proven more important than ever in offering some relief, some uplift, some poignancy in the face of overwhelming feelings of heartbreak, despair and anger. Listening to you three is like having a cadre of old friends around spinning yarns, both familiar and unfamiliar, about the great sport that is our shared passion. Thanks for that and for so much more. Overwhelming. We've had, I mean, we've had so many um, and so many of them have been really genuinely touching we don't read them out because it it feels a bit like retweeting compliments (laughs) but that one feels particularly important um and it's yeah it's quite quite difficult to sum up what um what messages like that mean to us so yeah we're thinking of you chris we're thinking of um with everyone protesting around the world today and for however long the um the struggle goes on for what we got tomorrow on uh, Roland Garros Relived? We have uh, Justine Enam versus Kim Kleisters in the 2003 final, but kind of more generally their rivalry and Justine Enam's French Open dominance for a few years. We're just about to enter an era that Matt can vaguely recall, <laughs> I think. I think your first French Open memories involve Justine Enam, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's it's staggering to me that we are what ten eleven days in, and we haven't mentioned Rafael Nadal. I mean, I know it's because we're doing the French <laughs> opening chronological order. But it does make you realise 
all my life, the French Open's basically just been Nadal, but there's just been, there's so much more to the history. All that to come, folks, here on the Tennis Podcast. Many more editions of Roland Garros Relive to enjoy. I hope you are enjoying them. If you are, tell people you know. Um, thanks for all the messages, as Catherine was saying earlier. It, it really is heartwarming for us to, to receive them. Um, and, yeah, just makes us want to want to do the best job we possibly can. Uh, so we'll be back again tomorrow with Kim Kleisters and Justine Ennan from the 2003 French Open. But for now, from us, goodbye. See you tomorrow. 